faith is the awakening of our confidence in God that knits us into the reality of God. Like it's the beginning of an interactive relationship with God. Well, that is what contemplative and mystical spirituality is all about. Contemplative and mystical spirituality is it's that same intuition. God is right here. God is right now. And salvation is not just a forensic reality, though it is certainly that. There is an announcement. You know, we are justified by faith. But even Martin Luther, the great reformer, actually said that the announcement that we are justified by faith, even though it's legal in its declaration, it's also creative in what it does. It actually makes the reality itself. Like So we're brought into an experience of God. That, to me, is contemplative and mystical spirituality. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Formation Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Williams, and on today's episode, I'm going to be sharing with you a conversation that I had recently with author and pastor Andrew Arndt regarding his recent book, Streams in the Wasteland. I really enjoyed reading Andrew's book prior to this conversation, and I think a lot of that comes through as we talk. But I did want to provide a little bit of context as to where this conversation goes, See, Andrew's book is really about looking at desert spirituality, the wisdom of the desert fathers and mothers, and applying that to our modern world. The world around us is defined by distraction, it's defined by chaos and turmoil, and it's no surprise for us in this age, it's becoming increasingly difficult to resist all of the things that are calling for our attention and live a life that is deeply rooted in being with Jesus, becoming like him, and being transformed from the inside out. Andrew believes that the desert fathers and mothers can help us do just that. So without further ado, I'd like to get into this conversation. One thing I would like to apologize for is that my microphone was not working properly right before our conversation started, so I had to record everything through my AirPods. So uh, the quality is not exactly what I would have hoped for, but nevertheless, the conversation is here, and I hope that it ministers to you in the same capacity that it ministered to me. Let's get into it. Well, hello and welcome to the Spiritual Formation Podcast. I am so excited to have with us today pastor and author Andrew Arndt. Welcome, Andrew. So great to have you with us today. Great to be with you, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, why don't, why don't you take just a few minutes and let our listeners know a little bit about who you are, um, where you are currently, and then after that, we'll get a little bit deeper into your personal story. Yeah, man. Well, my name's uh, Andrew, and uh, I'm the lead pastor of New Life East, uh, one of eight congregations of New Life Church here on the east side of Colorado Springs. And uh, man, New Life is a fun church where um, uh, an evangelical, charismatic, mega church, we've been around for a long time, and uh, but in the last 10 years or so, we've started to move towards a multi-congregational ministry model, which has been really fun. I am loving pastoring the group of people I pastor on the east side of the city. I love the team that I get to work with. I have been married for uh, 22 years. Got married in the year 2000 to my high school sweetheart, Mandy, and we have four kids together, um, Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam. And Ethan is 16, Gabe is 15, Bella 13, Liam 10. Very so good. between pastoring 
um, a growing congregation and having uh, three out of my four kids as teenagers we're pretty busy folks the place pretty full um, but I'm a you know I'm a Wisconsin kid born and raised uh, did college in Oklahoma I went to Oral Roberts University so kind of my background is that Pentecostal charismatic stream my parents uh, along with a group of their friends helped to plant the church that I grew up in in uh, the late 70s and it was wild charismatic signs and wonders healing <laughs> speaking in tongues getting slain in the spirit all that stuff so it's no big surprise that I went on to Oral Roberts University I did a business degree there and then went up to Chicago and worked on a Master of Divinity at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School so charismatic kid goes to Reformed Seminary to try to, <laughs> to try to learn something about church history and figure out what he believed about the Bible and uh, great experience. I loved being at Trinity. Um, so I served as an associate pastor for a few years after that. Helped some pl friends plant a church in Denver back in 2009. And then uh, uh, served as a lead pastor there for about eight years and then left in 2017 to join the New Life staff. And here we are. Very good. Very good. Yeah, well, we're, we're kindred spirits in the fact that we've both married our high school sweethearts. So that's that's fun. It's the best um, thing ever. I brought I brought three cardboard boxes full of stuff into our marriage. That's how that's how nothing we were. You know, when you get married at that age, I was yeah. nineteen, she was twenty. You know, so <laughs> yeah. Well, well, thanks so much for sharing, man. Um, I'd love for if you would just to share a little bit about how you came into ministry. Maybe a little bit about where you grew up, um, what your faith journey has looked like to to get to yeah. where you are today. Yeah, ministry. Um, has been kind of a it, uh, really a lifelong sense of call. I would say uh, the church that I grew up in was, um, you know, there are a lot of people that have stories of church hurt, and they are where they are because they were trying to push away from something in their background. But that was not my story at all. Um, but there were things that I they believed that I don't believe anymore, and ways of practicing our faith back then that I don't. I don't do anymore, but I don't, I don't have bad memories of that church. I don't, didn't have a bad experience. It actually, I loved that church. It caught my imagination when I was a, when I was a youngster, you know, I can remember my parents bringing me to prayer meetings, you know, Sunday night prayer meetings that were three hours long and people praying and prophesying and I've watched the life of the spirit. And I just think, I think even from those early, early, early days, I just kind of thought, I don't know what it is about the church, but I just love it. And I want to, I want to be at the center of the action. It feels like it's happening here. Uh, another thing that I think really like catalyzed the sense of call into ministry for me was I can remember being in worship services when I was a youngster watching my pastor preach. And there was something about the way that he used his words to open up worlds, you know, like describe reality in a way that made you feel as though life could be and was different because Jesus was Lord. That captured my imagination. So I started to feel a call to ministry from a really early age. Um, it, that was strengthened in high school, but I wasn't really sure what exactly to do with that. So when I went to ORU, I studied business, and uh, but felt as though, and some in some ways that was me kind of putting a fleece out a little bit, you know? It was okay. like, if I, if I study business and I feel great about this and you open up business opportunities, then maybe that's my way of knowing that that was just kind of me being in love with the church of my youth and it wasn't really a ministry call. But like, if you don't open up those doors and you're still bearing down on me, Lord, then I'll take my, you know, I'll follow that lead. And I did. I, I, I mean, just about every day that I was at ORU, I was like, I have to preach. That's what I want to do. I don't want to. 
business accounting, finance, fine. I'm glad that people do it, but that's not for me. My passion is the Bible. My passion is God's people. So that's what really led to me going to seminary was kind of waking up to like, I really want to be in church, but I don't feel like I'm as equipped as I need to be. So uh, working on a Master of Divinity, learning Hebrew and Greek and studying historical theology, church history. That was really, really important for me. And um, the rest has kind of been history, you know, since... Since then, I love being a pastor. It's not easy, um, but I feel like it's my life's work. I feel like I'm at the center of what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing. And in that vein, I'd love to just sort of transition into talking a little bit about your most recent book, uh, which is entitled Streams in the Wasteland, Finding Spiritual Renewal with the Desert Fathers and mothers, which is a wonderful work, by the way. And um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your unique outlook as someone who has this Pentecostal charismatic background and tradition, and even now as a a pastor and leader. Um, Can we just do Mm -hmm. that for a few minutes? Yeah. You know, in full disclosure, Andrew, as I made my way deeper and deeper uh, into your book, I felt this sort of uncanny kinship and connection uh, to the way that you view Christian spirituality. And what I mean by that is that, at least from my Mm. experience, it's not all that common to find Pentecostal pastors who both, you know, embrace the the charismatic and, and the, the beliefs and traditions, but at the same time, they marry that with this deep emphasis on contemplative spirituality and, and formation and I say that as a, as a Pentecostal pastor who's currently hosting a podcast yeah. um, regarding the <laughs> intricacies of spiritual formation and the inner life. So yeah. I'm very yeah. interested in how yeah. contemplative spirituality and specifically the connection with desert spirituality became something yeah. of such significance in your own life during, given, yeah. given your background. Well, I think the connections between charismatic, Pentecostal charismatic spirituality and contemplative or mystical spirituality, I think that they run deeper than most people realize. I have often said to people um, when they've asked me to describe the charismatic experience, like, what does it mean to be charismatic? I just always said, I think that at its core, what it is, is it's a belief that God is not primarily an idea. God is the living God. God is our total right. God is our total environment. You know, Paul says in him we live and move and have our being. And God is right he's right here, he's right now. And salvation is not us learning a bunch of stuff about God and going, okay, I agree to that and signing on the dotted line. Salvation is us becoming aware that God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit has been reaching out to us from all eternity. And we surrender to that and we enter into, I mean, that faith is the awakening of our confidence in God that knits us into the reality of God. Like it's the beginning of an interactive relationship with God. Well, that is what contemplative and mystical spirituality is all about. Contemplative and mystical spirituality is it's that same intuition. that God is right here. God is right now. And salvation is not just a forensic reality. Though it is certainly that. There is an announcement, you know, we are justified by faith. But even Martin Luther, the great reformer, actually said that the announcement that we are justified by faith, even though it's legal in its declaration, it's also creative in what it does. It actually makes the reality itself. Like, so we're brought into 
an experience of God. That to me is contemplative and mystical spirituality. So to back up and maybe give just some biography, I think I I started reading the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Uh, I'm going to call it a five and a half or so years ago. It was in the midst of a personal crisis, leaving the church that we loved in Denver. Um, it didn't end the way that I wanted it to end, and it really kind of mm. threw me for a loop. And I started reading these folks from you know the third, fourth, and fifth centuries of the church who gave themselves over to lives of simplicity, lives of prayer and fasting, the abandonment of power, and they found God in it. And I started reading them, and they helped me kind of like articulate to myself what I was going through and how do I find God in it. But what was astonishing, and this is straight to your question, what was astonishing to me was not how weird they felt to me, but how familiar they felt to me. <laughs> they were doing a lot of the things that I had seen people in my upbringing doing, even though the people in my upbringing were not reading the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And the, 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 the best example of that is my mom. You know, my mom is the second oldest um, of eight kids born to a couple farmers in Auburndale, Wisconsin, a little farming community. And she, with the rest of them, were they were up at 4, 4.30 in the morning every single day, milking the cows and taking care of the farm and all of that. And when my mom really came into a, a, an experience of the living God as her love and her Lord, she brought a farmer's sensibility to her spirituality up early in the morning, hours before the rest of us, praying, presenting herself before the Lord, uh, receiving the scriptures, feeding on the scriptures, fasting. My mom was always fasting. She was always so careful with her speech and her tongue. Well, when I read the Desert Fathers and Mothers, I went, I've seen this before. My mom did this. You know what I mean? So I think I've seen it a lot. What, 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 you know, taking the dive into the great literature of spiritual formation in the church, into the great, the writings of the great mystics and contemplatives of the church, into the Desert Fathers and Mothers, what it's done for me is it's helped me see like, oh, that's what was going on. Okay, so this is how you do this. This is what life with God looks like. So it's given me better language. I think it's deepened my sense of how spiritual practices deepen our life with God. And it really has not, um, it hasn't controverted anything that I learned in my upbringing, but it's actually, con it's confirmed it in so many ways. So I think that the connections are wild connections. I think, and I think they run all the way down. So as a charismatic, to be kind of that mystical desert spirituality, that just feels like, then of course, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, I love that. I think that's so good. And I think that you're right on because so much of the way that the charismatic tradition historically has approached even theology is that we start with experience yeah. and then we begin to fill in theological um, doctrine yeah. that is kind of after the fact. And we've taken from other traditions, we've borrowed right. this and that, but the, the heartbeat of the charismatic movement has always been exactly what you're describing. Yes. This experiential reality of God is with us. Yes. So I, I love that. That's so good. Yeah. Um, in your book, you, you talk about the desert father's, um, and about how they were really taking their cues from Jesus. Yeah. And you say, I'll quote you here, you say, Jesus went into the wilderness and emerged full of the Spirit. Yeah. So did the desert fathers and mothers. So can we. Mm. They can show us how. Then you say, the goal of desert spirituality is one thing, love. Can you unpack that for mm. us a little bit and help our listeners understand how fleeing the trappings of the world is actually an act of love. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, when you look at what the Desert Fathers and Mothers were doing, they saw society around them as um, a place of lies, a place of manipulation, a place um, where you could easily lose your soul. And so because they were so, I mean, I, they, they grasped this, like in their essence, what they understood was the call of Jesus. When, you know, when Jesus is asked, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they were so sensitized to that, that anything that stood in the way of them achieving that goal, becoming the kind of people who could do that, they just saw that as a thing that they needed to push away from. And they did that really in the spirit of Jesus. I mean, you think about the ministry of Jesus for all of his involvement with people, and he was highly involved with people. He also had this, I love the great statement of the great Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann. Many years ago, he said that if a preacher... He's talking about the preaching ministry here. And he said, if a preacher is going to bring a word from somewhere else, he has to, to a certain extent, live from somewhere else. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus lived from somewhere else. You know, his ministry is inaugurated with his time in the wilderness and he emerges from that full of the spirit. But then you see him engage that pattern over the course of his ministry. So when the crowds all of a sudden are gathered up around him and the Jesus revolution is well underway, like in Luke, I think it's Luke chapter five, Luke talks about how these crowds are pressing around him. And it says one morning he got up early in the morning, he went to the wilderness to pray. And when his disciples came to him, they said to him, master, master, like, what are you doing out here? All these people are looking for you. And he says, well, I must go to the other towns and preach the gospel there also. That's why I have come. Now that is a really astonishing freedom. You know what I mean? Like most of us, in ministry in particular, and I, even just most of us lay people, the moment our thing, whatever our thing was, got ahead of steam, we would just go, oh, okay, well, now it's on. Pedal to the metal and let's go. And instead, Jesus, because he's rooted somewhere else, he can hear the voice of the Lord, and he goes, ah, it would actually not be an act of love. I wouldn't be able to fulfill my divine vocation by following this pattern. I need to do this other thing instead. And you see Jesus do that over and over again. I just think that he's got this way of maintaining his footing in his divine identity, maintaining his footing in love, that's um, it's unusual. And it's made possible by the fact that he doesn't give him, just give himself willy-nilly over to what's happening around him. And I think that that's a pattern for us to follow. I think that the society that we're living in is a society of lies, and it's a society of manipulation, and it's a society where powerful people are preying on other folks, and it's a society that tells us that the most important thing that we can do is fight for our rights and fight for number one and self-actualize in some way. Well, how are you going to escape that? You know, the only way that you escape that is by following the pattern of Jesus, which is also the pattern of the desert fathers and mothers, which is really the pattern of just Christians, faithful people down through the century who have said like, look, we can't just like yeah. go with what the culture is telling us. We got to find a way to be rooted somewhere else. And the main way that you do that is by withdrawing establishing yourself in reading scripture and in praying, fasting, those kinds of disciplines ha have a way of helping you recover your identity so that, to the point of your question, you can live the divine vocation, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. But if we don't anchor ourselves somewhere else, we're never going to get there. The thing that I'm reminded of is, just as you're talking, this this invitation from Jesus and Matthew 11 of come to me, you yeah. know, all you who are weary and, and carry heavy burdens, yeah. 
And I think often that's, that's the whole problem is that we're so right. busy that we don't know how to come to Jesus. Right. And that's what I think is just so right on with what you're saying is that it is by withdrawing that we are yeah. actually then enabled to even respond to this invitation right. um, of an easy yoke that Jesus right. is offering to us. 100%. So, yeah, I love that. And, and by the way, I can just personally attest to just the way that even even myself, as I'm reading this book, I, I was lovingly challenged as I made my way through each chapter. And, and in the book, you, you do a great job of making the wisdom of these mystics and the desert fathers and mothers more accessible to mm-hmm. a popular audience. And again, I love that. And I think that as Protestants, um, mm-hmm. and even if we zoom out a little further, um, especially in certain evangelical circles, the desert fathers and the mothers can unfortunately be labeled as merely escapists right. um, who are seemingly, they're, they're motivated by self-preservation, not love. Right. Right. Um, or if, if, even if we take it further, maybe even worse, they're seen as embracing this sort of works righteousness uh, yeah. way of life. Um, I'm wondering if you could just talk about how you might critique that viewer perspective yeah. in order to see the benefits and the lessons that we can learn in a modern age from yeah. this ancient path, I think, as you call it in the book. Of, yeah. of what the, the groundwork and, and really just the principles of life that these people laid. Yeah, I, I think that the criticism that they're escapist, um, I think you can't um, I think you can't put that on all of them, but you can put it on some of them. I think that some of them were obviously just looking for a reason to get away from people and they were antisocial in some way and so they just wanted to run away. But I think that most of them just saw that their heart was not right. Their souls were under threat and so they needed to withdraw. And so they withdrew into the monastic life. And the way that part of the way that we know that in the main, the desert tradition is not just like, you know, it's not um, a big repudiation of community or purely selfish, is that they basically lived in communities. There were, you know, groups of them would kind of live together, usually under under the direction of an Abba or an Ama, and they had regular patterns of work, they had regular patterns of prayer, they had regular patterns of worship, they were expected to contribute to the, the needs um, of the common good. So they weren't running away. What they were trying to do is just trying to create a kind of new form of life, and also they tried to, as much as possible... Um, I think when their hearts were right, and so again, some of them were not this way, so you can't just like sure. look at them all through, you know, like all of them were this or all of that's not, uh, they're course. very different. But the best of them are very open to, they want to make their lives a gift for others. So the reason that we know about the Desert Fathers and Mothers at all is because people would come to them and sit at their feet and learn from them and go, oh, okay, this stuff, this could help me. And they'd take it back into their world and they'd be helped, they'd write down their sayings and stories and pretty soon, you know, one scholar says that they re-evangelized Christianity by virtue of their living separately kind of in this way. So that's the first thing yeah. that I would say. And I think that there's something for us to hear in that. Again, I think that there are, I think that there are a lot of us that are very frustrated right now with what's happening in the world. And I have jokes sometimes that like the psalmist, you know, when the psalmist says like, oh, that I had the wings of a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. For a lot of us, that's like our life verse right now. Like we just want to get <laughs> out of here. But I don't think that's the I don't think that's the answer. I think yeah. the answer is somehow you have to be in your life in a different way. You have to find a way to reclaim your soul and all that. So 
that, that's the answer to the first question. Uh, the second question, Nathan, I think that Protestants, you, you spoke, about it, spoke about it with like works righteousness. I think that Protestants historically have been very frustrated by works righteousness and skeptical of anything that smacked of works righteousness. Martin right. Luther, who I mentioned earlier, Martin Luther thought that the whole desert tradition out of which, and then monasticism grew out of that, he thought that that was mostly works righteousness. He thought that that was a repudiation of culture. He didn't like it at all. And there is no doubt about it. When you start taking steps down the road of spiritual disciplines, one of the occupational hazards of that is works righteousness. Right. Um, you're either going to do it from a place of deficit, where it's like, if I do these things, God will be happy with me. Or you're going to do it from a place of, I've done all these things. You'll do it from a place of pride. I've done sure. all these things now. God owes me something. And all of that is absolutely wrong. I think that, at, again, at their absolute best, when you read their writings, what they're really trying to do is they, what they're trying to do is they're trying to predispose the soul <laughs> to be a more fitting receptacle of God. And so if I can get apart from people, if I can get quiet, if I can come to a place where by the Spirit I've eradicated crazy desires and loud thoughts, if I've started to learn the way of humility with Jesus, what's going to happen is I'm going to start to experience God more in my life. I'm going to see God more in the lives of people around me. And God is going to shine through me more, which again is the goal of the spiritual life. It's not us doing a lot of stuff for God, but it's union with God so that the God life has lived through us. And I think that that's what they understood about spiritual disciplines, which is what more people, more of us need to understand about spiritual disciplines. And honestly, if what we're made for is union with God, and if union with God is the thing that's going to make us most happy, then we ought to throw ourselves like crazy into spiritual disciplines, prayer and fasting and solitude and silence and generosity, not because we're trying to earn something with God, but because God, we know that God has set us up in such a way that when we walk in that way, what it does is it opens us up more to Him. We experience more of the presence of God, which is our deepest hunger and our soul's delight, you know? So... I think that's how I'd answer those things. And again, it is important to say that when you start reading the Desert Fathers, you can't paint them with a broad brush. Sure. They're, they're very different. But I think that you can start noticing some patterns. And at their best, they don't think that they're earning anything with God. What they're doing is they're trying to chasten, like Paul talks about mortifying the flesh. They're trying to chasten their flesh so that their flesh is more in alignment with and their yeah. desires are more in alignment with the living God. Yeah, that's so good. I, I think I think like so many things in the Christian life, it comes down to our motivations. What right. are our motivations for what we're doing? And right. that's really the heart of what I hear you saying is that yep. as as we begin to do the hard work of not just saying, oh, well, I did this thing. Right. It's saying, Lord, why do I do the things that I do? Yeah. And out of that is birthed the real answer of what's going on in our lives and, and where we're experiencing God or not experiencing God. And, and really, I think coming down to the fact that if we can boil it down, spiritual disciplines at, at, the, bottom, at the, the bottom line, yeah. they're a means to an end. Um, they're a means to encounter yes. the living God. It's not yes. about the discipline. It's about experiencing God through the discipline. And you know, God is plenty good also at knocking us off of some of that works righteousness stuff. Because I think that the thing that you start realizing when you walk down the path, for instance, if you start taking prayer seriously, you know, you'll have some pretty cool experiences of prayer and God will show up and tear, you know, tears will be streaming down your face and you feel all the warm fuzzies and stuff. But 
God is not at our beck and call, you know? And so you, if you engage the life of prayer with any seriousness and you really think, well, I'm doing this stuff and therefore God owes me peak emotional experiences or deep feelings where I'm crying all over the place and blah, 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 well, just wait a little bit. And what God's going to do is God's going to hide. I talk about this in my first book, All Flame, but God's going to hide his sensible presence from you. And you're going to have to learn to walk through the dark night of the soul where you're doing these things, right? Even though it doesn't seem like there's a point in doing them. You know that I somehow prayer is working even if I can't really see it and I don't really feel it. That's God weaning you off of, I think, some of those things that are not good for our spirituality. And I think it's also God going, you do not, I don't owe you anything here. So I'm not going to shower my presence upon you just because I'm really impressed by your praying. That's not what it's about. Like, he's plenty good, I think, of putting us in the place of the pure heart, I guess is my point. I want to keep going with these questions. I have more questions written down here than I know we have time to even make our way through. But, you know, as you make your way a little bit further, you begin to uh, talk about something you call the great renunciation. And you reference the desert father, Paphnutius. And I wanted to just take a minute and ask you to describe what, um, in reading the book, I, I know the answer here, but I want you to be able to speak to this. Um, yeah. What is the great renunciation of yeah. the Christian life? And why is it so important that we begin to see this act as that great renunciation? Well, in principle, anybody that engaged in desert spirituality had to make the great renunciation. And so they lived a life somewhere in the Roman Empire where they had resources at their, their disposal and power at their disposal and things and all of that. And then at some point you go, wait, all of this stuff is kind of messing up my soul. So I have to say no to all of that. And I'm going to say yes to this new and simpler form of life, a form of life that's based on, again, simplicity, solitude, silence, prayer, uh, submission to others, community. So there, there was a renunciation that had to happen. You literally had to leave an old way of life in order to embrace a new way of life. What you see and what I think that they're doing is what they're really doing is they're living into their baptism. <laughs> what our baptism in principle is, I mean, and this is especially, you know, if you're in a tradition that um, is more adult baptism, and especially like if you, you know, when kids get baptized, um, I think that they have less that they're saying no to in principle. But you see somebody in their 20s or their 30s getting baptized. I mean, it's like a, I am leaving behind this way of life and I'm embracing this. That is what the call of Christianity is. It's like I, you've died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Now, what I think the life of discipleship is, is discipleship is, is coming to grips with how deeply that goes. Right. <laughs> so if we have died Absolutely. with Christ to the world, okay, well, now how far does that go? What does that say about how I need to think about my career? What does that say about how I need to think about my money? What does that say about how I need to think about how I steward power? What does that say about, you know, to hit a, a button that's kind of a tough one for a lot of Christians? What does that say about how I think about the future of my country and my involvement in the political scene here? Well, at a minimum, what Christianity is calling us to do is it's calling us to let go of all of the things that have defined us that are not God, and to find ourselves in a new way. We're literally, I mean, that's what it means to be born again. 
You know, is that naked we came into this world and naked we will depart. When you're born again, there's a there's a sloughing off of everything. Yeah. So here's what's really interesting is what what Paphnutius says is Paphnutius says that God will lead us in the into these places of renunciation. One of the ways that he does that is by um, like individual like he'll just sort of um, will be in a time of personal prayer. And the Lord will tell us, again, that if you lose your life, you'll find it. So, hey, maybe I'm holding on to this lump of money. Like, maybe I got, like, a, an amazing end-of-year bonus, you know? And I'm in prayer, and I'm thinking about all of these ways that I can use that end-of-year bonus. And all of a sudden, I hear a call from the Lord that I need to give all that money away to some charity or mission in the city where I live. Oh, okay. That's what. So we're going to have to renounce the claim that that money has on us so that we can use it for the kingdom of God. That's one way that it can come to us. Another way that renunciation can come is just, so it's just individual inspiration. Sure. Another way renunciation can come to us is that we have people in our lives who are telling us, hey, maybe that thing that you're engaged in there is not so good for you. And you might need to consider laying it down. So like, maybe I've got, um, maybe I've got some habit in my life that I'm engaged in. And one of my good friends comes up to me and goes, Andrew, I don't know if you can see this, but it's easy for all of us to see the impact that this is having on your family and the impact it's having on your soul. Man, you need to lay that thing down. It's time for you to like really do business with that. Okay, well now if I'm listening to the spirit in that, I'm going to give that up. But he says that the third big thing, and I think that this is uh, so much of Streams in the Wasteland was written to people in this category. He says that if God can't get our attention with the first thing or the second thing, then the third thing is circumstance. And what God will do is he'll use painful circumstances to break the stranglehold or to break the bondage that uh, we have to things. And in my case, you know, I, I think that this was um, the occupational hazard of being a young man in ministry. I helped to plant the church that we pastored in Denver when I was 28 years old. And whether I knew it or not, I was really eager to prove myself in it. And before too long, I had my identity so deeply tangled up with it in a way that I couldn't. I just couldn't separate them. So when the church was doing well, I felt amazing. When the church was not doing well, I was in the pits, man. And I know that all along the way, the Lord had been speaking to me through the scriptures and through other people trying to get me to renounce that. I don't know that I, I didn't. I was not, at that point, I had not proved that I was capable of doing it in that. So I think that the Lord orchestrated some circumstances to force me to lay it down. And that experience of having to let go of that ministry and be naked for a while, um, vocationally speaking, was one of the best things that could have ever happened to me. And it was the Desert Fathers and Mothers that helped me see that. Oh, what God is doing here is He's helping me living into my He's helping me live into my baptism. He's helping me let go of the world. He's breaking the hold that the world has on me, so I can be a new creation, living in love and freedom before God. So. That, to me, is what the Great Renunciation is all about. It's all about living in love and freedom before God. And whatever it is that has its hold on us, that's preventing us from living in full love and freedom, the Desert Fathers and Mothers would go, that's a thing you need to have a conversation with God about. It yeah. might be time for you to lay that thing down. I'm so glad you said that because you're, you're clearly the only pastor that's ever really encountered that and you know found your identity in what you've yeah. done. You know, it, we all need it never this, happens right? to anybody. Yeah, yeah right? It, we all need this, and it's so important because it doesn't matter if you're in ministry or if, you're, if you work at a bank or if you work. It doesn't matter. The, the fact yeah. is that so often we're guilty of finding our value and our intrinsic worth in something else. In something else. And let me tell you something. Now, this goes all the way back to the, one of the first questions you asked me, which is about love. 
if I'm in that kind of a relationship, a relationship of bondage or servitude to a thing, I can't actually love the people that I'm called to love in it very well. So one of the things that in retrospect I realized really limited my leadership at the church in Denver was that I was so deeply desirous of them approving of me and so deeply afraid of their disapproval that I couldn't actually be the leader that I needed to be, which means I couldn't love them the way that I needed to love them. Because who was I more concerned about? I wasn't really concerned about them. I was concerned about me. Sure. My feelings, my existential sense of self-worth, my livelihood. I'm more thinking about myself than I am thinking about them. So again, the question is like, what's got you bound? Like Karl Barth said in one of his definitions of God, is he said, God is the one who lives and loves in freedom. Mm. And if we are creatures who are made in the image of God, and if God's goal in our lives is to get us to rise up and become like Christ Jesus, then we're going to be creatures who can live in love and freedom. So then the question for us is, what has us not free? And if there's any area of our lives where we're in bondage, where we're doing stuff compulsively, just out of habit, we're doing stuff out of fear or irrational desire, you got to do business with that thing because that's locking up your humanity. So yeah, again, it's absolutely. all it's it's about love. Absolutely, I know. I know you mentioned his name earlier, and and you actually use his name multiple times throughout the the whole book. Uh, this Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, and at one point you use his life as an example, and you talk about how our conversion is really any anyone who's uh, been brought into the family of Jesus, how that's really only the first mm. of many necessary withdrawals. Yeah. Um, from the world, if we're going to learn how to live lives that are defined by God alone. And I think as you were talking about that, it just kind of brought that to my mind of what, what does it mean for us to begin to look at the Christian life differently and see that our, our withdrawal from the world, it's not that, that instantaneous decision we made way back or whatever your story is. It's, it's the daily call of yeah. dying to self and yes. taking up our cross and following Jesus. So what what does that mean if we can take hold of that? How can that affect our lives, especially as we think about spiritual formation and in the inner life of becoming like Jesus? Well, I think uh, I've often said to people that Jesus doesn't um, save us from crosses. Jesus saves us for crosses. The life of faith, mm-hmm. that's what Paul says. I want to be um, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. It's a confor- being conformed right. unto the likeness of his death. So Paul thinks that the closer you get to God, the, the more your life takes on a cross shape. And I think that we need to brace ourselves for that. And then I think we need to, in every situation, we need to ask ourselves, what's the cross that I need to carry in this? And there's, I mean, life has, uh, life has a way of throwing... Uh, uh, no, there's no shortage of crosses for us. Like they're all there for us. And the question is again, like, what do I need to die to here? What am I grasping for, trying to hang on to? Where am I looking out for myself more than I'm looking out for the person in front of me? So I, I think about. I'll just give you an example. I'll give you a leadership example, and then I'll give you a parenting example that might help with this. Again, the renunciation, the crosses that we're called to carry in leadership. You and I were talking before we started the podcast today that leadership just is conflict. And that doesn't mean that you're seeking out conflict, but there's stuff that's going haywire in our churches and in our communities. And our call is to help reestablish order. And that means that most days we're going to have tough conversations with people. And I have seen over the years that part of what will make hard conversations even harder 
is when I bring uh, when I bring in a ton of fear to those conversations. Well, why would I be bringing fear into that conversation? The reason I'm bringing fear into that conversation is because I want that person to think well of me, and um, I don't really love. Therefore, when we enter into conflict, sometimes the reason that I bring fear into a conversation is because I'm trying to control the outcome. And I'm yeah. not sure if I'm going to be able to get the, the outcome that I want. Well, suppose I died to both of those things. Suppose I died to the need to be liked by this person. And suppose I died to the need to get a specific outcome. And what I was really interested in is getting to the truth and connecting with this person. Well, what I have found is that when I've died to those things, it's actually allowed me to live onto the, into the power of God with these people. So if I'm not seeking myself, if I'm seeking the truth and I'm seeking their good, those conversations wind up going a lot better. But there's a cross in it for me. Uh, example from my parenting, three teenage kids. I have told so many people recently that when you have kids, when they're little, they are physically demanding. When they get to be teenagers and beyond, I've heard this from parents, they're psychologically and they're spiritually demanding. I don't always know what's going on behind those eyes. I don't know what's motivating them. And also, the older they get, the less control I have over them. Yeah. And so yeah. one of the things I'm learning with them is that what part of what will plague and pollute my relationship with them is if I bring my fears for how they're turning out or who they're going to be into my relationship with them. I they're going to ultimately they're responsible for their decisions. So I've got to like hold with an open hand my kids and I'm finding that when I hold them with an open hand, when I trust the divine parent to lead them and guide them, when I die to my need to have them turn out the way I want them to turn out or, or for them to take a certain, you know, for their life to take a certain, when I die to that, I'm actually, I can be in their presence in a non-anxious way. And I can just tell them the truth as I see it. Hey, let me just tell you, I'm just going to give this to you, take it or leave it. This is what I think right. about this situation, but it's between you and the Lord to work that out. I have freedom to do that because I've died inside that relationship. And I think that the, the life of the Christian is one long crucifixion. It's on us to just think about where in our lives do I need to carry the cross, you know? Again, where am I fighting more for myself? I'm fighting more for preservation than I am for faithfulness to God, you know? Yeah. And oh, the desert, again, the Desert Fathers and Mothers, they can help us suss a lot of that stuff out. Those really are good examples of what it means to withdraw from, yeah. from those trappings of control, the desire to manipulate the desire to make sure that things happen in a certain way. And yeah. the call of Jesus is to say, I'm going to actually, you know, it's, it's Jesus in the wilderness, right? Yeah. It's, it's him being offered all of those things. Yeah. And by the power of the spirit saying, no, like I, I'm going to live by the mouth and the word of the father. So like you said, those aren't, those aren't earth shattering examples, but it's all right. of those little things that are forming the yeah. people we're becoming and the way our relationships yeah. are turning out. So I think it's just such a beautiful reminder. I love that you brought up, I mean, I'll just say to you, I love that you brought up the temptations of Christ there. Because what Christ is doing is he's refusing, one, one, he's refusing to achieve his divine identity in any way that doesn't involve absolute submission to his father. And secondly, he's refusing to achieve the kingdom in a way that is of his own making. Right. You know, the devil wants him to, why don't you just do it in this way? And he's like, no, I don't want to do it in that way. So I, I think about that, you know, um, you and I both come from, you know, we're part of the evangelical movement here in the United States, you know, and one of the things I think that has sometimes plagued our witness is that we have a vision of how America is supposed to go. 
<laughs> you know, how this, what this country is supposed to look like. And what winds up happening is that we wind up succumbing to the temptations of the evil one. As we go, well, if we just manipulate this thing over here, you know, if we can satisfy the masses in some way, win them over to our side, then we'll get the kingdom, you know? Or uh, if I can, if we can force God's hand in some way, then we'll get the kingdom. Or if we just compromise our values in this way, fall down and worship me, then we'll get the kingdom. And again, it's Jesus going like, you, you are already sons and daughters of the living God, just as he is already always the son of God. And God the Father is perfectly capable of establishing the kingdom in his timetable. So stop reaching for those things, renounce those things, walk in faithfulness to God, and then watch God unfold the divine plan in his way in his time. I'm just thinking of this as you're talking, but... Too, that's even just another reminder of even how Jesus modeled this great renunciation, right? What it, what, what took place directly prior to this? He, he was baptized and he, he lived baptized. in that identity that yeah. God the Father speaks and says, this is my son. And out of that comes just yeah. the fullness of life to be free. I, I love yeah. that. Well, man, I, I w- I'd love to keep going. I, I, I know we're coming towards the end of our time. I would love to ask you one more question before we wrap things up. There, there, there's a specific thing you say in chapter three, um, and I just I wanted to quote you on this. So good. It says, as you progress in the spiritual life, the stakes only get higher. Not only that, but I'm now firmly convinced that the further into this you go, the more aware you become of your own humanness. That is your own capacity for self-deception, your own predilection to folly. And what I still appreciate about that, that whole statement is that what you say here goes direct, directly against the grain of a common belief that formation is always linear, that it's always yeah. happening in a straight line. And, and what I mean is that I think so many of us assume that the magic or the enchanted ingredient for change or transformation is always time. That if, yeah. if I just have this amount of time, then, then I'll see change. The Christian struggle is, is often assumed it's going to be most intense at conversion, right at the beginning, right. it's going to be most intense. And over time, it's just going to get easier and easier and easier. There's yeah. this forward progressionism of, of the Christian yeah. faith that we envision. Yeah. But you actually seem to suggest that the longer we follow Jesus— the more deeply we actually enter the struggle to become people who have the inner life that matches Jesus's inner life. So uh, all of that to say this, um, how can reimagining and revisioning our prayer lives lead us deeper into transformation, even as the temperature goes up, even as the, the, um, the struggle with our own humanness intensifies over time. Hmm. Well, I think prayer is the place where we come to process all of that stuff. And I, I think that, uh, to back it up just a, a step, I think that the reason that the struggle actually gets harder, um, the deeper we get into this, one, I do think we're more in touch with our humanness. Two, I think that God trusts us with more. And so, therefore, there's greater spiritual weight and responsibility is put on us. But three, I think because we know the mind of God more and we know the subtlety of evil, of good and evil more, we see with clearer vision. And so things that 15 years prior would not have really bothered us, all of a sudden they cut us deeply. And now we're in the midst of this situation going, oh God, that grieves me. And I know the rules of the kingdom. You know, the rules of the kingdom are not, I can't just go and like smash into this situation and just fix it. I have to trust you in some way. So it starts summoning up deeper stuff in us. 
which I think drives us more deeply into prayer. I think it puts us in a place, like prayer for me has increasingly become a place where I'm saying to the Lord, Lord, uh, open my eyes that I may see, like help me understand what's happening in this situation better. It's increasingly becoming a place where I'm going, Lord, I, I know what my temptations in this are going to be, so please help me. And it's becoming a place of going, Lord, now please empower me to carry my cross and to do the hard thing. Like I just, this morning, my devotional reading was out of Matthew chapter 26, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here it is, you know, like I, most people around him couldn't understand why this was such a conflict for him. Why, why do you have to make such a big deal about what's happening in Jerusalem? Why did you have to keep calling out the leaders, you know? But he saw that this was the path from the first and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. He submits himself unto the Father. And then he says to his disciples this, I love this. This is my point. He says, rise, let us go. And they rise up from that place and he confronts the angry mob with the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. He marches boldly into what the Lord had laid out for him to do. And I think that's what prayer is. I think that prayer is a place of wrestling with the will of God I think it's wrestling with our own humanness. I don't really want to do this, but if you are calling me to do it, oh God, and then it's a place of rising up and going, rise, let us go. The moment is at hand. Let's go, let's go do it. And I think that God meets us in that place. So I do think, I think the deeper you get into it, I think the stakes get so much higher, but God is faithful. God is faithful. And he's going to carry us right on through to the very end, sustain us through all the ups and downs and all the turmoil that we face. Yeah, and that's that's the promise, right? The promise is, you know, we we always want deliverance, but um, what what God yeah. has always promised is His presence. You know, I will never yes. leave you, forsake you, and I yes. I think that yes. that's really the heart of what you're saying is that you know we don't always know what the path is going to take, what form it's going to take, or what 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 it's going to look like, but we do know that there are things we can hold to that are going to be unchanging as we walk this path. Yep. Um, yep. Well, man, thank you so much, Andrew, uh, just for taking the time to, to have this conversation. I know I've, I've enjoyed it so much. Um, and I know we'll definitely have to do this again. Just, just love, love your heart, love, um, your, your insight here. And I just want to encourage every person who's listening, if you haven't already to go and pick up a copy of Andrew's latest book streams in the wasteland. It's available, uh, I assume wherever you buy books. Is that right, Andrew? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Um, lastly, to hear more from Andrew, uh, please go and check out the Essential Church podcast, which is a weekly conversation designed to strengthen the thinking of church and ministry leaders. Thanks so much, Andrew, for, for taking the time. It was a joy. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Formation Podcast, a podcast where we have conversations that lead to transformation. For more information, please visit our website at rss.com slash podcast slash SFP. Thank you so much.